This is Candlelands Media. Hello and welcome back to the Folk Horror Podcast. I'm your host, Neil. This week we will still be talking about The Wicker Man. We do have some feedback here, so thanks for the feedback. It's been very useful. And seriously, if there are any suggestions, let me know because I know as a podcast listener that sometimes you wonder if the podcast maker would appreciate someone telling them that their audio sounds weird, but I would like to know, please. So I realized recently that Mike sounded a little off in the last mix, not just because he's calling in from Skype, but because he was too far on one side while my voice was in the middle. I've tried to fix it for this episode. And so, for feedback, we have my close associate, the real Kev P. First. He wrote on the blog about how Lord Summerisle introducing his old religions parallels how the neo-pagans and Wiccans attempted to reintroduce ancient traditions. We did talk about that a little bit on this episode, but he also mentioned Anthony Schaefer's brother Peter, who was also a writer, and wondered if Mike had confused the two, which Mike confirmed he probably did mix up the two. So um, there are two different guys. Look them up online. Oh, and the real Kev P. also specified... A rig, such as a corn rig or barley rig, is something you find in a plowed field. When you plow a field, there is a small ditch that is left in the path of the plow. This is called the furrow or the run. The earth that is moved to make way for the furrow then gets pushed into a small row a few inches high between each of the furrows. That is what is called the ridge or rig. Go and walk in a recently plowed field and you will see what I mean. And that is a beautiful image. It's such a, a part of British folk horror, the identification of the, the beautiful details of regular rural life. I really like that. And the real Kev P. also mentions that the Green Man was not the most common pub sign. It's the Red Lion. He once read about an American tourist who thought that Red Lion pubs were a chain because there were so many. So thank you, Kev P., for your comments. Those were very useful, and please continue to listen and correct any inaccuracies you hear. We know there will be many. We're realizing that we don't know as much as other people do about a lot of this stuff, but we're kind of learning as we go. Also, user Lipwack, I guess I will call him, posted on my Boojum Pudding blog some really great information. You can go there and read it, but I'll, I'll read it off here. He mentions um, the book Inside the Wicker Man by Alan Brown. And he recommends that as well as a wiki that he and others created about the Wicker Man. And you'll find the link on Boojum Pudding. Also, a good Wicker Man Facebook page is The Wicker Man 1973. Uh, you can just type that in onto Facebook, 1973 in parentheses. And in addition to that, I'll read his message. Uh, he says, The rights to the book Ritual by David Pinner were brought by Schaefer, British Lion, to be used as film, but it was decided that it, that it wouldn't work, so it was abandoned. Uh, and he mentions there are many similarities. Um, the painting on the ceiling of the Green Man that we were so fascinated with was a tarot card painted by Diane Salento. Um, it is of the sun, uh, as Mike was saying, and it's the High Priestess card. So that's kind of neat. Uh, the Eye on the Boat was apparently a real boat that they found on location at Plockton, uh, owned by a fisherman. Even even though the Evil Eye is more of a Mediterranean tradition, they had to use it in the film because it was so cool. 
Um, let's see what else. Oh, he was wondering about uh, the story that Mike had heard about Robin Hardy stumbling into a pub where there was a festival going on, and he was wondering where that came from. So Mike found online a uh, there was an article that was published in Cinefantastique. I uh, found it on the internet, and it's just full of information. You'll find the link on my blog. But here's the little excerpt. About ten. This is Robin Hardy talking. About ten years ago, we were filming in the Cornwall area, and one evening we went into Padstow for dinner. Now that is a village where these festivals are still held, and quite by accident, we stumbled right onto it. We saw the hobby horse chasing the girls, everything. But they had seemed to put up a wall of evasion about it, and it was a very unpleasant being a stranger in that town on that day. So I think you can. You can feel some wicker man in that little passage there. Uh, he, he also recommends I do go to the Hastings Green Man Festival, which, of course, is going on right now, and I'm missing out, and it looks really awesome. Um, you can see all sorts of pictures online. And he says, go to Padstow on May Day to see the, to see the Oss. I guess that's the Abbey Oss. Uh, he contradicts what Mike had said, that there were a lot of psychedelic guitars in it, and Mike agrees that there really is only a little bit at the end. And apparently the cave chase had the psychedelic guitars in it and that's why that seems a little bit odd um let's see oh the original film was destroyed lost it wasn't really buried under a motorway that's a urban legend uh howie being massaged by Britt eckland it was a shot taken by the set photographer wasn't didn't really happen and the missing scenes weren't really cut by the censors uh, many of them just didn't make it into the in, into the first version of the film and let's see, Christopher Lee thinks maybe there's some scenes hidden away. So uh, anyways, thanks for all the feedback. I really appreciate it. And just keep sending it in. Um, it's actually really nice to have people kind of fact-checking us. So go, go right ahead. So thank you very much. I'd also like to give uh, the Folk Horror Revival people a plug here, uh, since they are so cool. Since it's still upcoming, I want to mention the official Folk Horror Revival event, Swan Songs, which still has tickets. And it's an evening of haunting music with Sharon Krause, Hawthorne, and Sarah Dean. It's in York, England on May 12th. So that's coming right up this week. And Folk Horror Revival just announced an event for July. Folk Horror Revival presents Witch Cults, July 14th. Five hours of film, including two full-length features and a number of shorts, with two showings, 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. to 12 a.m., as well as talks, lectures on witches and witchcraft, and... Um, array of musical talent performing live from 7 p.m. to 1 a.m. Okay, and with that, we're going to go straight into the talk because there's plenty of it. A little bit of a spoiler. It looks like there will only be need to be one more episode to get everything in. So this is part two of a three-part series discussing The Wicker Man with me and my pal, Mike. So the next scene is very shocking. <laughs> it's yeah. him going outside in the dark and, and it's all the couples having sex in the fields and things to note about that scene are all the women are on top, you know, which has given some folks the, you know, basis for thinking of it in the film in terms of feminism and free, free sex, free uh, love and sexuality. Uh, but the other thing that I really, you know, resonated is the fact that as he's walking, so he's shocked by what he sees, he sees in slow motion, all these women basically riding their partners and then there's a stone wall, and on the other side of the wall is a cemetery, and there's a naked woman lying on one of the grave plots and obviously mourning her lover, it seems like. Yeah. And so right away, right away, we're make, the link is made clear between life and birth and reproduction and death, right? So we're made that 
made to be aware of that right away. Um, and there's one thing that's interesting, and I don't know if this is in the original, but for this director's cut, when he's walking by the couples, it's slowed down. Like it's all it's yeah. all in slow mo. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. know I wondered is that it could be that like he didn't really have much of a shot, like didn't have much footage and so he wanted to, to slow it down. I don't know. Hey, or, do you do you happen to know if that was in the original? I'm not sure. I think it was. The first time I saw that I remembered it being very eerie, and I think the reason it's eerie is because not only does he slow it down, but I think he like eventually slows it into stills, right? I it's think actually, you might be right, yeah. Which which means it feels like it's grinding to a halt or something and really made it feel eerie for me uh and later on there's also a slow motion shot too like if uh, the fire dance scene is also shot in slow motion oh, really? yeah the woman who's coming into the scene not willow but another blonde woman who's approaching oh the pregnant the woman i think right yeah the pregnant woman yeah. exactly yeah that's right the pregnant woman as she's approaching all of them in a circle she's approaching in slow motion so okay. kind of links more more reproduction more linking of sex to reproduction to death and it's just a really haunting image of that naked woman on the on the uh, on the grave. Really beautiful. It connects it back to other horror movie imagery, but is clearly connecting it to the sex, the scenes of sex as well. And yeah, the thing about women being on top later that we he as he's basically searching the entire town for Rowan, like tearing apart the town, he finds two dolls, and the dolls in in one of the children's rooms, the two dolls are in a sexual position where the female doll is on top of the male doll oh wow i didn't remember that yeah kids are taught when they're taught like in the school about sex they're probably taught that women are on top and in in control of the, of the sex act which is interesting when we talk about horror in the movie these things that aren't traditionally hor horrific of these people like you know having sex in a field it is horrific it's you see it from his point of view which is that this is this is the worst thing. And you think that maybe part of what is a problem for him is he has a difficulty w with if, if, if female sexuality is stronger here, that's offensive to him. You know, the yeah. fact that these oh, yeah. women want it or that the, that Willow wants it is not yeah. at all what he, what he is comfortable with. And so that is, it is the, 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 the feminism that he is kind of, you know, having a problem yeah, with really clear that he comes from a patriarchal back culture, a Judeo-Christian patriarchal culture, and that this is the idea of women being in control in any way is something that's foreign and, and hor horrifying to him. And, you know, also some of that is horrifying, I think, to just the mainstream viewer. I mean, the idea of this kind of like open sexuality, like right there in a cemetery is, is, is macabre. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that has, a horrific element and even just the idea of the landlord pimping out his daughter i mean that's that really transgresses it's very transgressive and and for that reason also felt like more in the solid the horror context and so really for me it just means like whatever your background is will determine what you find to be horrific yeah you know yeah yeah so let's talk about the the next scene if you're ready to move on uh, yep. Which is almost, I mean, it's it's related in that it's it's the scene where he goes back to the hotel, and the young man is delivered to Willow by by Lord Summer Isle, and that's actually where we first see Lord Summer Isle. Another sacrifice for Aphrodite. Yeah. How he, yeah. Yeah. And this is in the final cut. So in the first version I saw, I know I remember distinctly. We don't meet him until much later. Okay. And this is the this is moved up much earlier in the film, and I think it works brilliantly. I think it's really key to the importance of the of his character that we see him 
in this kind of shadier light first. Like you yeah. see him in the half in the shadows, right? His and and if you want to, you know, take a screenshot, I think there's a brilliant scene of his face, which is half in shadows and half not, as he's offering the boy to Aphrodite. Uh-huh. And there's a big palm there, and there's if you notice, there's two snails on the palms, and they're they're mating, right? And yeah. so there's that animal imagery and. He basically is dressed in a kilt, so traditional Scottish dress, but he's in shadows. And he's talking about the day of death and rebirth. And he also references a more serious offering for later, which is a foreshadowing of sacrifice. Yeah, you know, I, something that just occurred to me. I wondered if almost this boy was meeting with Willow so that he wouldn't even be considered as the sacrifice. Hmm. I, I just occurred to me because it's almost uh, like they needed to take care of that before, you know. Well, they I mean? needed a virgin, yeah. They, yeah, well, and they, so, they, they, so to make sure he wasn't a virgin, I guess is what I'm saying. I, yeah. I, yeah. yeah, good point. I mean, so the the idea there is that they didn't necessarily need to invite an outsider for the sacrifice, but they did so because they didn't want to they didn't want to murder any of their own. Yeah, that's interesting. And actually, that's yeah. one of the darker things later in the movie, which is that he actually says. You know, we could have sacrificed something else. We could have sacrificed a child, you know, and you're like, oh, so that actually occurred to you before you decided to find this well, police officer, you know, you, you thought about it. I, I love that quote. So I wrote it down. He basically says that uh, animals would be fine. Uh, little children are even better, he says. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Says, but but the best would be the right kind of adult. Yeah. And you know, by the right kind of adult, he clearly means a, a virginal adult and one who comes willingly of his own volition. They've, they've got the perfect mark in Howie for that. So yeah, that's a, that's d directly to your point. They could have sacrificed the child, but it wouldn't have been ideal because it would have been murdering one of their own. And it, it in a, an adult who's a virgin would be even better. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. And also so, for the mood of the village, that if you sacrifice an outsider versus, you know, somebody in, in, in the village, yeah. While we see this, we, we get, it's intercut with the song Gentle Johnny, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is all about losing your virginity, which is perfect, per like another example of a perfect match of music and, and what we see on the screen. I put my hand on her knee And she says, do you want to see the other thing that I just wanted to note about Christopher Lee's first appearance in this scene is the sinister, the sinister scorn in his voice as he talks. As and so as we get the shot of Howie kneeling and praying by his bed, you know, basically uh, Lord Summerisle is, you know, is completely tearing him down in a, in a monologue essentially for no one to hear but us. Yeah, he's talking, he's talking about how he could live with the animals because they don't kneel before a god they don't confess their sins they don't um pray and offer duty to to a god uh they basically just get on with their business mating like the snails on the on the leap <laughs> and and just the scorn in his voice is so sinister it made, it did make me feel early on in the film that you know there's something something really dark and dreadful in store for howie yeah. at the hands of this man in this town yeah, for sure. Um, and, and this is the scene when they're performing the music, Gentle Johnny or Gently Johnny, whichever it is. You see, I really like the guitar player in there. Again, he just looks so authentic, like you could see him in a in a yeah. 70s pub, you know, right. strumming the guitar. And then um, 
there you see Paul Giovanni singing it, right? That's the guy with the curly yeah. hair. Right, right. I'm pretty sure that's yeah. yeah. Um, yeah which I just yeah. love him in the movie because again, he looks so so real and so. I mean, this is his music, so I mean, it's you see why yeah. he's he's so into it. But um, yeah, he's got a beautiful voice too. Oh I mean, yeah, it, yeah, for sure. The way they close mic the singing on that is, you know, so uh, it's it's it literally is gentle. It's it's almost like half whispered. The song is so close mic'd that. You know, he doesn't even project it all. And I did hear on, I did watch one of the extras on the disc about the recording of the soundtrack. And Giovanni talked about kind of the imperfect recording process, how they perfectly left, purposely left in kind of all of the kind of grime and the, you know, the uh, ambient noise and the, you know, the sound of the fingers on the strings and all that stuff to kind of give it that authentic feel or something. Right, right. So the next sequence of shots is really impressive. I, I mean, I double starred this. And so it's a juxtaposition of Sergeant Howie praying by his bedside, the uh, Paul Giovanni and the members of Magnet performing Gently Johnny, Christopher Lee out down in the dark garden. Uh, the sex scene or the offering of the boy to to Willow in the guise of Aphrodite. The, then it cuts to the two snails mating. And then it immediately cuts back to Howie in bed, like looking tortured. I mean, he's he's hiding his head under his arms. And then it cuts back to the pub where everybody's listening to music and drinking. It just the juxtaposition of all of those images was was intense. Yeah, and the mood in the pub was it compared to like when they did the the landlord's daughter, it was sort of somber. Like Yeah. Like, yes. this is an inevitable thing, but it's not like they weren't joking about it. You know what I mean? It was like. Yeah. The mood of the song is somber, too. I mean, it's it's like a really slow ballad and it's about losing your virginity, but it sounds sad a little bit and yeah. gross, you know? So I thought that was, yeah, something about losing your virginity perhaps is not fully seen as, you know, a positive thing, or maybe it's just the idea of losing your innocence. I, I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. You're right though. The, the cuts, the editing, all really amazing. And I don't know if that's a newer thing. I don't, you know, when you think about a director's cut, you don't know if these, that's exactly how it was done the first time around. Yeah. It really comes off well in this version and just, you know, emphasizes the themes of the film about sexuality, animal and human nature, you know, this, Christian, you know, man who can't face his own sexuality, his own urges. Yeah, I mean, and then the pub, of course, the kind of the sense of uh, sacrifice where people in the pub are quiet. I think that reminds me, too, of films where, you you know, conspiracy films where, uh, you know, everybody, a crowd scene, everybody's talking, it looks normal. And then the, the character who the conspiracy is being foisted on leaves the scene and then everybody falls quiet, silent. right. <laughs> Right. Almost like once he leaves the scene, the pub falls silent because it is a big game, a big, a big play for his for the benefit of of offering him up. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, do, do we move to the next? Oh, do we move to the next scene? Which is my that's this is my favorite yep. scene. Um, just the the whole the whole setup of it of it of it is amazing. Um, and and they have the uh, the violinist is back in there playing playing the violin. Uh, they have the maypole set up. The kids are all dancing around it. In the woods there grew a tree, and a fine fine tree was he. 
And on that tree there was a limb, and on that limb there was a branch, and on that branch there was a nest, and in that nest there was an egg, and in that egg there was a bird, and from that bird a feather came, and all that feather was a bear. It looks like that guy must be like their music teacher. That's what I kind of assumed. Like yep. maybe they have one male teacher and one female teacher, and he's he's like in charge of the music and the and the boys because they separated them for this. Yeah, if you listen to the lyrics, he's teaching not just about music but about the reproductive cycle. Yeah. Well, because the song is like the seed grows into the tree, but it's also the seed grows into the man. Yeah. And the man die the man dies and then goes into the grave, which then gives birth to the tree, which you know then gives birth to the then a nest in the tree and a feather and the feather makes up the bed yeah. and on the bed the man takes the woman and puts the seed in the woman so it's very similar to this irish song which is called the rattling bog which hmm. li- here's li- literally the lyrics the feather on the wing and the wing on the bird and the bird on the nest and the nest on the twig and the twig on the branch and the branch on the tree um uh, and recently you should look for this because it's really cool there was a uh, kind of a viral video of um people at an Irish wedding, like after the wedding, just kind of hanging out and singing songs. And mm-hmm. these two sisters perform this song, the, the Rattling Bog. And that's when I heard it. And I was like, oh, my God, that's that's the that's the Maypole song. Wow. And they literally took that song and then added sort of the, the sort added of sexual, the sex the, yeah, the yeah. sex stuff to it. Yeah. I love the lyrics to this song. I mean, yeah. And I thought about the green grass grows all around as well, which there's a really cool uh, Lewis Jordan version of that song. I, you know, Lewis Jordan was a jump blues R&B singer, and he he he. I think he added a sexual piece to it too, I, if I remember correctly. Uh-huh. I have to go back and listen to it. But you, I guess you found the origin. That, that I, song. I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it is. Yeah. It is that that there's a sort of a tradition of and children's songs of of the cumulative song where things. Yeah, add in, on. Uh, in Judaism too, and in. Uh, there's a song called Dayenu, Dai Dayenu. That that song, I'd have to look up the lyrics. That's a chain song as well, where one thing leads to another, one thing gives birth to another. Same same kind of deal. And they're also kind of like memory songs too, right? Like you're supposed to remember. Right. Sometimes, right. Sometimes you have to repeat the verse that came before. You know. Um. So then, yeah. So each each person could add on the next thing as you go around the circle. Yeah. Or, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now here. So one of the unsung heroes I feel like in this movie is um, the choreographer. Yeah. Um, there's and it's surprisingly it's surprising when you look for it that there is quite a bit of choreography in a lot of the scenes when they're right. dancing when they're just sort of swaying or they he just has them just like okay for this scene everyone just sort of sway your arms back back and forth which has right. a, just a really neat effect of like a a village that's all in on on the same wavelength you know like they know what they're supposed to be doing yeah. now to be honest this part i i didn't actually notice it someone had to point it out to me but that the uh the kids all around the maypole are doing pelvic thrusts <laughs> Oh, jeez. Uh, well, the songs go. And at first, I just thought, oh, that's a kind of an interesting dance they're doing. And I was like, oh, maybe that, maybe that is. Huh. Which is just, that kind of pushes it a little bit for me. You know, I, I'm happy yeah. with the with the sex ed and, and that sort of thing. But I thought that was wow, that might there, be a little. There was something in this film that horrified that you. Horrified maybe. me, yeah. When they're all, yeah, they're all connected to the maypole, and I was I was made uncomfortable by a lot of the children sexuality stuff. I, I felt yeah. like. It, yeah. To me, it struck me as improper, but but more like, like I've been watching um, um, shows about uh, different tribes in in the world and how they how they deal with things, 
And it just makes it just made me think like, well, I, I can accept that this is how they would do it. Like this is how they would do sex education, you know, yeah. where sure. we would have some other method and we'd wait for a specific time or but it didn't right. seem like this was apart from maybe the, the pelvic thrusts. It, it didn't it didn't necessarily strike me as something that I would be totally offended at if I knew my son was, you know, learning, learning at school. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, considering some of the things I learned in the schoolyard, you know, way, yeah. way, way beyond that. Oh, for so. sure. Yeah. Yeah. But this is a nice lead in to the scene in the schoolhouse. Shall we go yeah. to that one? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. He sees a lesson about what does the phallic symbol represent? And it's like, just so obvious that you know she just comes out basically it's the penis you know she's uh the generative know, she... force in nature is what she says yeah yes exactly and that that phrase comes up over over and over again the regenerative regenerative force and so it's clearly part of the kids lessons and they're learning about may day festivals and i also noticed on the on the chalkboard they have um toadstones and flat and hagstones yeah and he's like he like just erases some of that but that's so yeah, that he can yeah, write just... what he wants to Right, which is kind of a reference maybe to the, you know, Christian church trying to erase pagan rituals. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But those are those are magic stones that have healing properties and kinda you know, you're supposed to put the toadstone in your mouth, which maybe reminds me of the, the scene later oh. foreshadowed the scene later with the uh, toad being put in the kid's mouth. And and we should say that the actress who plays the school teacher, her name's Diane Salento, and she is really awesome in this. I I don't I've never heard of her, but um she had like a perfect combination of the like, you know, kindly school teacher, uh, but also kind of sexy and sexual and also a little sinister later on as well. And, you know, she's kind of the main consort of Lord Summer Isle and she plays, you know, she plays a bigger role later when uh, they kind of confront Sergeant Howie. So let's talk about the I mean, this is an awesome scene that maybe isn't talked about as much, but that's the scene with the beetle on the nail. Yeah, in the yep. in the classroom, and that's that's Daisy who apparently sang the opening song, um, right. but she's really sinister and kind yeah. of creepy. And that sure. that scene is just such perfect symbolism for what's going on in the movie. You know, that's yeah. that's when they're just basically saying, A "Trap." Yep. Yeah, yeah, and it's I mean it's visceral imagery. It's like it's a, it's a game a kid might play to torture an insect, but yeah. you know it's not the insect that's being tortured in this case you know that's the reference um yeah that was that's a memorable one i remember that from the first time i saw it for sure yeah and it's also part of the horror aspect of the film too you know it's one of those images right. um I, I love how he basically calls all the kids in the class liars like he takes out his anger on the kids in the classroom yeah yeah and he finds because he finds rowan morrison's name in the school book and you know which he's meant to find it's and it's another clue perfectly planted for him um but yeah he basically takes it out on the kids you know it's like you know and the school teacher because he's like now i see the issue with this with this horrible paganism that you guys are doing here it's because you're teaching it to the kids at a young age you know that really like you said about you know where we as viewers may draw the line it's like you know when you involve innocent kids and for him it's like you're 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 um staining the souls of these kids you're basically soiling these these kids you're ruining these kids and right. he takes out his anger on the teacher and on the, on the kids themselves and at what point i didn't write it down in my notes but at some point she tells him to go to the desecrated church 
Yeah. So she basically, if, during that scene, if you remember, she says that she can't say the word dead. She can't actually say it. She has to mouth it. Yeah, right. And I, I just love that. It's a nice touch. It was kind of funny, I thought. And it, it does show that although they are lying, there's, there's a lot of instances where they're just lying. They also maintain that some of the things they're saying make sense to them. Yeah. You know, like there's, she's not technically yep. dead or it's not really a right. church, you know, like. Yeah. they're. Yep. Yeah, it's right. They're being accurate in their own terms. It's not a churchyard anymore because it's not sacred ground anymore. And and dying is not dying either. And this is where she talks about something that's akin, I think, to transmigration of the soul uh, and reincarnation. And I, I just noted in my notes, like, you know, that actually using elements from Eastern religions here, right? When talking about reincarnation uh-huh. trans, yeah, and, tra- and transmigration of the soul. And later when he, he uh, unearths the casket and there's a hair in the casket, you know, she basically says something like, well, I thought it was a lovely form of transmutation. Yeah. You know, which, you know it's, uh, I thought that was a, a cool thing to say. Um, but yeah, so from, from the scene, he goes directly to the cemetery, right? To, to, um, yeah, he goes to the cemetery. He walks through, like, into the ruins of it, and they've sort of set up a, like, um, can't remember the oh, word. Oh, a trellis. A trellis. trellis, yeah. And then he sees that lady, and this is almost, there are a few scenes that are sort of like a um, a surreal thing, yeah. and that's one of them, where this lady's breastfeeding, oh. holding an egg. Yeah, it reminded me of Valerie and her Week of Wonders, because of the symbolism in that film, which is all about fertility and virginity and maturity and all that yeah so the egg you mentioned the egg earlier you see that as a as a kind of growth a symbol of growth and new life yeah you also i also just was thinking like what when they decided to put her in the scene like what like okay we'd like you to breastfeed your baby and hold this egg you know what i mean like there was some thought that went into it right it wasn't just like it just didn't just happen though. I think she gives, I kind of noticed her in the background. I think she gives the egg to the baby after. Yeah. So, so I don't know. Okay. So it's either feeding the baby with the egg or, yeah. you know, symbolizing the new birth, you know, she's yeah. Like, why is she even doing, what is she even doing there sitting on that it, tomb? It must be because it's like a religious place for them. Yeah. And he, he himself wants to kind of reconsecrate the ground. So he like makes this cross. He, kind of splits two pieces of wood and he makes it makes a fake it makes a, a handmade cross and it reminded me both of vampire films like where he's you know trying to ward off vampires and it also just made me think he's trying to reconsecrate the ground yeah oh for sure yeah 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 and then they go back to the candy shop right where the woman's putting the frog in the in the girl's mouth yes to quote absorb the sore throat <laughs> yeah Yes, just kind of interesting concept. There's probably some basis in 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 previous superstitions about that, right? Uh, absorbing the the ill. Somehow. Yeah, or having a frog in your throat. You know, it's all some sort of yeah. connection. Yeah. And I like how she says, "Like, can I do anything for you?" And, and his response is, "I doubt it, seeing you're all raving mad." <laughs> yeah, I like that line too. Yeah, I wrote that down. Film's funnier than people remember. I think, right. You know? And that's and that actually his his point of view is that these people are insane at this point. He's just decided yeah. they're they're not just like pagans; they're insane people. Right, they've gone off the deep end. Yeah, yeah. And that's the cult aspect where you know we have to remember this was made 
in the immediate post-Charlie Manson era. So the idea of a cult where everybody, like a collective insanity that takes hold among a group of people, from his perspective, this is a dangerous cult and everybody's gone insane. Yeah. So we go, we do go to the chemist shop as well. So I think before that, actually, we go briefly to the, to the town records where he meets Ingrid Pitt and notices the biblical names changed to more pagan style names, I guess. And these are more clues for him to find. And then we go to the chemist. Oh, well, I was just going to say that she's eating canned peaches deliberately. They show that to kind of. Ah, I didn't notice that. Yeah, oh, and okay. they even try to do a little bit of a comedy bit where she pulls, she's kind of angrily pulls out a can of peaches and slams it on the table. <laughs> like, That's right. I, I was wondering why she did that. Like, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, she can't get any fresh fruit. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I'm sorry. Then, then we go to the chemist. Is that right? Yes. I kind of yeah, messed yeah. up my notes here. Okay. And this is, for me, another reference to other horror imagery, because you see all those jars full of foreskins <laughs> and hearts and brains. Yeah, and, and, yeah. You know, it, bring, it brings to mind the mad scientist in horror movies who has, you know, brains in a jar. And Yeah, so we, we just, the camera just lingers on those, those shots of the jars. Uh, I don't even remember what the purpose of that scene was. <laughs> oh, that's just to talk to them about the picture. He talks to the chemist then about oh, yeah. the picture and why it's right. not there. And the guy right. makes up some story or something. and Yeah. 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 And then he goes uh, on the carriage ride after that. Right. And so we get a little bit of Corn Riggs again plays on the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And so the carriage ride is kind of giving him a tour of Lord Summer Isle's estate, basically taking him to the castle. And, and so the first thing he sees is the, uh, the fire dance, the naked women in a circle by those large standing stones. And, you know, this is. This is significant because this is the first kind of site of these standing stones in this film, which is, you know, amazingly important in pagan and Celtic mythology. And yeah. Kind of made me think about the children of the stones, which this film had to have been an influence on. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just the same time period. Well, it's also the fact that the sense of an idea of a cult in a, in a certain community that's isolated, that's following their old, the old ways, the old gods, and kind of creates a cult-like atmosphere where if you don't, if you don't join in, then, you know, you're going to be sacrificed or something bad will happen to you, which obviously is the case in Children of the Stones. Right. But yeah, but the, the scene is this is an iconic scene that I think has been, you know, excerpted other places. Just looking at watching the women dance, watching them jump over the fire over the bonfire, which is, a, I guess, a fertility ritual used during Beltane. Right. I guess I don't know if that's a real thing or if it was. Because that's actually the issue with when you look at, like, what is a real pagan uh, tradition. The truth is nobody really knows much about what is the real tradition. So it's often yeah. like what when they had a, a revival, what was well, real, what uh, someone kind of created or, or pieced together from what they learned about before. So we should talk about that a little bit, because there's a lot of folk customs in this film that have, you know, curious and maybe specious history and. I mean, it's a mishmash. They're taken from different places, different times. The sword dancing, you know, people talk about that coming from something else, something different. Uh, the maple dance, obviously, is a famous, you know, famous custom. But, yeah, here I didn't know what the the fire dance and, the, you know, I've heard about jumping over the bonfire. In uh, Polish tradition, you do that as well. And, you know, I, I've done it myself and I've singed my ass a few times. <laughs> oh, I also like, by the way, how Lord Summerisle, like, Basically, how he's complaining like about it, like, and they're all naked, and and Lord Summerisle's like, well, yeah, obviously, otherwise the clothes would burn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's 
that this scene is obviously full of pagan symbolism, uh, the standing stone. Yeah, uh, what I was actually going to say um, when you're talking about pulling things from everywhere, that's been my experience now with the 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 pagan people that I've been meeting. And at first, I was kind of like, that doesn't make sense. You're talking about Greek myths. You're talking about Celtic myths. You know, you, you pick something. You can't you can't do everything. But right. I think what a lot of people are attracted to paganism is it's literally is kind of like a build your own religion where yeah. a lot of them do just take this from this and that. And that's how that makes the religion their own is that they don't have to follow a, a, a distinct set of rules. They pick and choose. And I think that's kind of why these people seem so free is that that they are embracing all the gods. It's Aphrodite. It's everything, you know. Yeah. 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 And to that point, you know, the I mean, I think that it is this film was meant to be a, um, you know, not an accurate portrayal of any one myth, mythic or pagan religion, but right. a combination of them. And it's actually, you know, if you think about it, it takes place in Scotland, but it's directed and written by Englishmen. And the, the soundtrack is scored by an American. So it is kind of like this outsider's view of those traditions. And so they're. You know, they are also just like people here in America who kind of adopting pagan beliefs are it's it's they're they're taking what they resonates with them and and focusing on that. And so it's not it's not like true to an actual, you know, right. what it was, you know, what the culture actually was like. It's an outsider's view of it. But, you know, we have to remember this film was made in the early 70s. And it's also so this was, you know, the height of the counterculture or just after the height of the counterculture. And there was a sincere interest in a lot of different alternative forms of religion at the time. So not just Celts and, you know, Celtic, Druidic, but Wicca and, you know, Hare Krishna and Scientology and, you know, Esalen and Taoism, all of that stuff. So like, you know, there is a, a real idea of syncretism in the culture at the time, taking different belief systems and merging them, creating something new uh, there were Christian existentialists. There were, you know, Eastern, you know, uh, Buddhists who adopted, you know, other religions into that. Um, you know, Jewish Jewish thinkers like Allen Ginsberg adopting Buddhism, you know, so, et cetera. So it, I think it was in the water at the time, right? Just mixing syncretically all these different belief systems. This podcast is brought to you by my online Candle Ends media store. Uh, you can find the link on my blog or go to uh, squareup.com slash store slash Candle Ends Media. I think you should just go to the blog. Currently, there's only two items, but I have a whole bunch of things that I'm going to be adding over the weeks. And so you can at least check it out for now. Uh, right now, you can buy my all-ages book, The Druid of Royal Oak, or you can buy a very rare item indeed, which would be of particular interest to British folk horror fans who live in the U.S., but you'll have to go to the store to see what it is. I'm not going to spoil it. Once you see it, you'll see that uh, you, you'll get the idea of what we're going to have on our, on our website. Also, if you would like your product featured or if you would like your product sold on the online store, let me know at neil at candle-ends.com. We mentioned a little bit of sort of their introduction, some of the things they said, such as we don't commit murder. He starts talking about parthenogenesis. 
Oh, yeah. Um, the regenerative process. Yes, and there's this quote that I, I texted you. Shocks are better absorbed with the knees bent. <laughs> <laughs> it took, took me a minute or five to figure out, you know, that one. I know that's a famous quote, but I just couldn't remember it for some reason. I, yeah, I don't know I, if it was famous. It just stood out at the time. I just thought it was kind of, you know, just a funny line, you know, like yeah, a, a yeah. one-off. Yeah, I'll also give you a, a quote as well that, you know, when um, – when Sergeant Howie talks about the one true God, he uh, uh, Lord Summerisle says, "Oh, well, he's dead. He can't complain." In the modern parlance, he blew it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I also love how he talks about Jesus, uh, uh, about Mary being impregnated by a ghost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, from a, a virgin impregnated by a ghost. Yeah, it's kind of a pretty good touche as far as like a a religious ar argument, you know. Oh, he's he's I think he had a, a few touche moments here where he pretty much just demolishes the uh, Christianity and, and this guy's grasp or this guy's devotion to it. So and there is an interesting thing here, too, where he starts talking religious and you think, wow, he's really into this before almost just on a dime switching to talking about the scientific reasons for being on the island and how how he got there and how, I mean, how his grandfather got there. Um, yeah. It's kind of yeah. an interesting switch where it's almost like he's t changing tactics. You know what I mean? Like, well, yeah. I've destroyed yeah. your religious argument. Now I'll explain, you know, the, right. the, the real right. thing that's going on here. And it's not religious at all. I mean, the founding of the island has nothing to do with religion, right? right. His grandfather was an agronomist and wanted to use the volcanic soil and the warm Gulf stream to produce a new, new strain of crops that would be hardy and, uh, no pun intended, and would be resilient and would be would not fail in future droughts and et cetera. New strains of fruit, he says at one point. So so this is the part of the movie that I thought was the most similar to science fiction or fantasy. Right. The, the idea that, you know, like he's this kind of Darwinian figure who's going to like create new crops. It actually reminded me of The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. Yeah. I mean, I thought about I thought about the island aspect, going to an island to experiment. In this case, on plants, not on people and animals. Yeah, um, I started thinking that, like, if if you need if you wanted to do some sort of uh, uh, another movie like this, you could almost do a prequel talking about like how how they came to the island and how it got to the stage it was at before how he got there. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> So. Yeah, absolutely. I would watch that for sure. Although I haven't seen The Wicker Tree yet, so depends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> no, that that would be cool. I mean, I mean, that would be a very different movie, of course, because I, I think what he also explains in this scene is that he uh, he brought in the old gods and mythology to um, uh, to what is it he he says he says to keep the people from being apathetic. Uh, so he brings back the old gods as a means of kind of social control. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it felt very mad scientist, authoritarian kind of demented leader who, you know, has this weird utopian vision. But it's it is, in this case, he's expressing that because he wanted to enrich, well, I don't know about enrich himself, but but had his own plans to create this um, new strain of fruit. And yeah, so it, it does go back to the idea of you know, does he really believe in this stuff or is he using it purely for social control? Right. Right. Yeah. And we don't know. 
Yeah, I think it's left open. I think there's a purposeful skepticism in in this film. Though, for someone who doesn't believe in it, he's pretty into it. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, that's a good point. Like that's a good you, point. You could yeah. probably say, this is the religion, and you guys just do it, and I'll just be here being rich. But instead, he's oh. deeply involved. I mean, he's deeply involved in it. So I think you may believe it. I mean, that's a good it's a good debate to have, actually, because, I mean, a did he believe it from the beginning or was he did he eventually get into it? Well, and, if, if his it was if his grandfather introduced it, it's almost that he was would have been raised in this religion, you know? Oh, sure. So yeah, like that's right. this is right. even his like if if you know, if. I was raised Christian, but and now I sort of identify as, as sort of culturally Christian. You you identify as culturally Jewish, I would think, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's kind of that that's still your religion, even though you still know that it if it doesn't make a lot of sense, you know. Well, here's another twist, though. I mean, what, another thing that he reminds me of is in the late '60s, these these kind of older tweed wearing, you know, professors and, and people who suddenly grew their hair long and joined hippie communes. And, yeah. You know, basically just to get women, just to get free love. And and yet they kind of pretended to espouse the ideals of hippies and, and 60s counterculture, but really were just in it for themselves. You know, there's something of that in Christopher Lee's performance here as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he definitely has the wild kind of, wild look of a of a recently converted hippie you know uh cult leader and and yet yeah you can kind of see think. though like why the villagers would all love him and respect him you know like he's yes, completely he's benevolent. Be- benevolent to everybody yeah on the island well he's but yeah. be- he's benevolent until you cross him i mean you know I-, I bet that if one of the villagers decided to question the old old beliefs uh, even just raising the question could probably get them in a whole lot of trouble. Right, right. Maybe they would be next year's sacrifice. I don't know. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. So, and that's the and that's the case with a lot of dictators, you know, who are appear to be benevolent, but you know, really they have they have their minds focused on a single goal. And yeah, Jim. I mean, I, Jim Jones was a really kind of like. A socialist i think and had some like you know yeah. good ideas about racial equality and stuff yeah until it yeah. all kind of collapsed and you realized really what was going on but yeah that no that's well in this case for lord Summerisle, i think the we we'd have to emphasize the benevolence because all indications in this film are he really does care for his people oh i also like the parting comment that he makes to to howie as he leaves great pleasure meeting a christian copper <laughs> and he, the way he says Christian Copper is just so drenched in scorn. Yeah. So All yeah, right. They're, they're, he's off to the graveyard. Okay, so he's off. He's off to the graveyard, and does he go right to the grave of Rowan? Supposed grave. Yeah, he goes straight to the and and it is kind of funny because he's like, I just wanted to know if I could exhume the body, and he's like, I think I already gave you my permission. Um, yeah. Right, <laughs> like, right. He'd kind of yeah, said something that. earlier to that effect, you know, where, and that's yeah. nice too, is where he stays benevolent. He stays like, oh, well, if you have to do it, that's fine. Just do it. Yeah. You know, well, he has the run of the town. He basically allows him to, to, to tear the town apart in a, yeah. in a little later scene. And I mean, it's all because these are, these are breadcrumbs designed yeah. to lead him to the slaughter, you know? So he does, he digs it up right away and, and it's all done very quickly. And he opens the, the coffin lid and there's a hair in there. And that's when the guy, the undertaker, starts with his devilish laugh. 
you know, he's basically cackling yeah. at the fact that there's a hair there. And, um, yeah, and I think he goes, doesn't, uh, doesn't Sergeant Howie go right back to the castle and he tosses the hair right down on, on the nice little bearskin rug? Oh, whatever skin rug. right. He goes right back and that's when they're singing. Is like Ingrid Pitt hanging out with Lord Sunrile? Yes. And they're singing yes. then. No, it's not Ingrid Pitt. I think it's um, Diane Slento, I think. Oh, okay. There was a tinker lived of late who walked the streets of Rye. He bore his pack upon his back. Patches and plugs did cry. Oh, I have brass within my bag. My hammer's full of metal. And as to skill, I will conduct and mend a broken kettle. Well, and apparently that song they're singing, it was the only original song written by Anthony Schaefer that was used in the film. Okay, and again, uh, it's it's really it's really body. Like, I, I yeah, hadn't exactly. listened to it again until I was listening to the soundtrack, I think, a couple nights ago. And I was like, "Oh wow, this is this is like yep. the naughtiest song of yeah." Of that them one, all. that one might not be safe for work if we put it in the podcast. Yeah, yeah. But apparently, there were like five more um, verses to it that didn't get used. Like he wrote a whole a whole song for the for this scene. Oh. Um, and and I think it probably is. There's a reason why it's the only song written by Anthony Schaefer as opposed to Paul Giovanni that was used in the in the film because it's. I think so. So from what I read. Uh, Anthony Schaefer wrote a whole bunch of songs throughout the film that would be throughout the, the um, action in the film and that would comment on the action of the film, but really didn't have, had a very tenuous connection to any traditional songs. Okay. And Paul Giovanni threw them all out basically and, and was encouraged to apparently once he started digging into, you know, traditional songs, Robert Burns poems, uh, you know, child ballads and Celtic hymns and, and other things, then they saw that he was on a good track and encouraged him to do it. And so they Paul or uh, Anthony Schaefer had no, no problem with him not using any of his songs, but that is a body one for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like her comment too. When he throws the hair down, she says, personally, I took it. Uh, I, I personally, I think it makes a very lovely transmutation, right? <laughs> like, you know, right. a lovely cup of tea or a lovely, you know, wreath or something mundane. <laughs> Yeah, and that's why it makes more sense, I guess, that it's the school teacher because he had sort of interacted with her more and right. kind of discussed Rowan as well. Yeah, I think she even actually referred to transmutation earlier in, in one of the scenes, uh, maybe teaching the class or something. I can't can't remember, but yeah. Yeah, it seems like like in myths I've I've heard maybe of I don't know of King Arthur or something. You you think of them as changing into a hair as one of the more common things. Hmm. Yeah. Oh. Interesting. I might yeah. just make be making that up, but well, why not? You wouldn't be the first. Why not? <laughs> yeah, and so when he, uh, so you know, this is the point where how he starts demanding answers, and I like I like Lord Summerisle's very simple response to him. You're supposed to be the detective here, <laughs> which is interesting to think of this film as a detective film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's Anthony Schaefer had written detective films, or at least had been involved with. Um, detective type films uh and there's a lot of clues in this film and he is a detective and he is piecing the clues together but do you think uh, do you think this movie makes sense as far as like well i tend to like i tend to like movies that like people react as they really would you know so like 
you know, like if do you think that this does a good job of portraying what a police officer would do if he was going to a village and had to investigate? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think because of this character is so unique to this story. Yeah, that he's going to react in a far different way than an average police officer. And also, frankly, I think like would would really a police officer go and then do all this investigative work by himself and not bring back up or no yeah. contact with the main. I, I don't know. Cause they, yeah. I mean, if you do have a, a remote community, you don't have, you might not have a local law enforcement or you might have to rely on. That's true. Yeah. I mean, if you think of like in America, you might have to have the, uh, like the County patrolman check in on something. Right. You know. And in a, in a rural village or in a small yeah. town in America. Yeah, yeah that, that's true. Well, and that's absolutely true. I, I just wonder, wouldn't he be able to call for backup? Yeah. Like, why would he have to pilot the, pilot the plane himself? You know, like, yeah, that's yeah, unusual. That's, I even like when watching this again for the whatever time, third time was like, I even asked that question. Like, ah, I thought I thought there must have been a pilot who dropped him off. Right, I mean, right. Is this guy really that multi-talented that he can pilot a plane? And he's also, you know, like, you know, a minister where he can lead a sermon back home. And he's, you know, trustworthy as a detective enough to do this full investigation himself. So I don't know. It, it would be funny if, like, the backstory almost is that he's such a, like, um, he wants to be such a good person or, like, such a paladin that he heard about this and just kind of was like, that's it. I'm going to just take care of this myself. You know, like maybe that's the yeah. backstory that he was yeah. almost like kind sure. of driven. Like maybe he's a little bit of a, a little bit mad himself in that right. he was like, I'll just go do this myself. I don't need it. You know, I don't need yeah. backup. I'll just go in there, well, maybe take that, care of it and yeah. I'll be out of there. You know? So. Well, maybe that has something to do with his Christian background. Yeah. 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 Uh, individualism and, and, you know, whatever's anti-communalism and, and, you know, taking care of things yourself, fixing it yourself, any problem can have a solution and, and uh, applying good old, you know, uh, common sense and, you know, good old hard work, roll your sleeves up. Yeah. Right. Well, at this point, is there more here or does he go back to the hotel room and then we have the, the willow scene? Yeah, he um goes back. Uh, I just made a note here. Like earlier, you you'd mentioned that uh, it would be cool to see a prequel to see like yeah. the story of the island earlier. And I just noted in my notes that uh, apparently that this that the island where they filmed it and in actual in actuality the actual um the actual Summer Isle Island. You know, these islands in Scotland were apparently very overgrazed in the previous century. And they were very barren islands. So for me, that that's kind of cool. And it goes with the whole um, kind of science fiction aspect where his grandfather arrives on a barren island, maybe, and, and you know, manages to revegetate the island through some weird science. And you know. it, it's like the Tempest or something, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. The barrenness and the isolation kind of go hand in hand. So, so I, from here, yeah, yeah go he ahead. goes back to, well, he goes to, um, to find, he goes to the chemists. Oh, and okay. The, yeah. So the chemist is also the harvest photographer yeah. and he's taken those photos that were up in the pub and he goes to find the missing harvest photo. And this is the real like sleuth detective aha moment for Howie here. 
because he finds the actual photo and lo and behold there's no harvest and there's rowan in the photo yeah he even says rowan and the crops failed <laughs> i don't know why rowan failed but apparently so uh, i wondered sorry, about but... those photographs i was thinking like did they just have a pile of produce and they put a different girl in front of it and <laughs> mess the produce up, you know, when they're doing the, doing the pictures for the movie, you know, they, right. Oh yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh, just toss those apples <laughs> over there. And yeah. Well, they were filming in November, right? right? Remember? So there's like not a lot of fruit and veggies that were fresh from the harvest to go around. So yeah, that's yeah. true. That's, that's why the harvest failed. It was November. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little late. <laughs> and then there's a shot of an owl. That it, that it cuts to. It's a cool shot of a stuffed owl, though, and it and I did think of the owl service, um, even though that's that's plateware and not an actual owl. But right, um, right. The folk in the folk horror. In the folk, but in the folk story from the owl service, she changes into an owl. So that's ah, uh, that's right. The the old Welsh kind of story that they're reliving. Yeah. And then we also get a flashback to the church again, and so this might have been where the that church scene was originally placed in the film and not at the beginning of the film because in the well i don't know if that what's original and what's not but in the theatrical version we don't have the church scene in the beginning and in the director's cut we do or the final cut we do and then it recurs here so it is it is used twice he's he's really finding he's trying to dig deep for his faith here and yeah you know, he's he's really needing some power. And, and I think probably there's the idea in his brain that he might be in danger, perhaps, for starts soon, soon after this moment. Uh -huh. uh, just because, you know, he's 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 on to a real major conspiracy having to do with murder. I mean, so, you know, if I if it were me, I would be looking behind my looking over my shoulder and behind my back. Right. Yeah. I That's the that's the thing. When I started thinking about how realistic it was, if you're in this town where you suspect a murder and a cover-up is occurring would you go back to your hotel room i guess yeah. I don't and go know. to sleep yeah <laughs> go for a nap <laughs> yeah sleep in your plane in the water i don't know yeah well he does try that but that comes after and right. so yeah he he goes back to the hotel room and uh i guess it's evening right though this is the second night right this is the second night yeah yeah so that's this is the the most one of the most famous sequences in the film here, this is Willow's song. And you've got Britt Eklund gyrating wildly on the other side of the wall as as she gently knocks on the wall, kind of pulling him. And I have in my notes that the band Magnet was named appropriately because like a magnet, she's drawing him, trying to draw him through the wall to her. And you mentioned the choreography, right? Which Yeah, you can really see it here. It's really like natural choreography. You know, it's... It's not really dancing. It's more like it's 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 more like a like a like a caveman might think of how dance what dancing was. You know, yeah. like banging it's on the ballet. wall, moving right. your swinging your arms yep. around, and well, banging her hands on her body too. She plays her body like oh, a yeah. which which is really erotic, actually. I mean, I think it's it works even though she's pregnant apparently, and and they mostly film her from the weight like the uh, navel up or from the breasts up. Uh, they did use a body double for the other scenes.
make you wonder to what extent do you think this is sort of a a sexploitation movie? You know? Oh, I, I think it's kind of the anti sexploitation movie. Okay. Because it's about because it's not uh it's not a titillating film. It's not the sex is not a purely prurient interest. It's not used gratuitously. It's all of the sex in the film is behind the idea that sex is a completely natural part of life. Right. And it's a regenerative process and it's connected to reproduction, you know, and but it's also connected to other things too and the animal world, like seeing those snails do their little sex dance on the leaf, you know. I mean I feel like I feel like that makes it an anti sexploitation film in a way. Why not what do you think? Yeah, I it, it might be the sort of cake and eat eat it too sort of thing though, you know. Sure. Like yeah. you know, like look it like you know, like how they used to be like people would watch nudist uh movies and be like, Oh, look at these people enjoying their nudism. You <laughs> right. know, yeah. you know what or I mean? Like Where Mondo, Mon- Mondo Kane or something. Yeah. You're like, We're gonna study these these strange behaviors and <laughs> show you a lot of TNA as well. Yeah. The I absolutely I mean I think they had to have in the back of their mind the idea that it would draw a certain audience to this film. Yeah, it's, it's obviously And then they cast Britt Eklund, right? I mean, right. come on. Yeah, yeah. and they acknowledged yeah. in the behind-the-scenes thing that, like, they literally were like, we cast her because she was really hot. Even though she had a... Oh, that's right, they had to... I didn't understand that they had to redub her entire dialogue. I thought they just had to redub yeah. her when she was singing, but... Right, no, the whole thing. I mean, it would have stood out. Yeah, I, I wondered why they didn't do that with Ingrid Pitt too. Right, but, um, she right. gets away with it, I guess. And I, I would just to go back to my the point. I really don't think of it as sexploitation at all, even though it might have had some prurient interest, and they might have even thought that could drive people to the theater. It, it's the the aims of the film are so opposed to the idea of sexploitation, which is cheap, quickie films that are you know gratuitous with nudity in order purely to satisfy the male gaze. This does none of that. I mean, the women really are in control of their sexuality in this film for the most part. Um, and, and while it's sex, you know, sexy and erotic, it, it's not, uh, exploitive at all. Okay. Willow's song is what was used in Hostel. I'm not sure how they used it in that movie. Oh. And we know that Eli Roth is a big fan of the film, but there must yeah. have been something similar of somebody being tempted in a hotel or something. I'm not sure. But. Sure. Well, it's kind of an eerie song, even though it's sexual and gentle and folky. It's it's got like an eerie quality to yeah. it. Yeah. And it, again, the, it, the melody, the melody is eerie. I think. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, this is probably the the most famous song, and this has some really bawdy lines in it as well. Sure. Really... Yeah. <laughs> he resists. He's tortured. He's kind of hiding in his bed. Uh, at one point, he gets up. He's kind of pulled like a magnet uh, towards the door, uh, you know. And and then the next morning, she asks, "I thought you would have come to see me last night." And he basically, he looks like he's hung over in bed. Yeah. Like like he did go to see her, and it made me confused at first. Um, but there's also a, a really cool scene here, which again I didn't remember, which is there's a picture of the children, a bunch of children. And they're carrying a giant, I guess it's like a giant bread, a giant child made out of bread. And they're, was that bread? I think it was probably bread. Like oh, it, it was be baked. Because okay. there was that bakery yeah. that was doing this. Right, um, right. Yeah, and, it's white, and they, like white bread, right? And they walk him out and they're like, we carry death out of the valley. 
Yes. Okay. That's that's. Now I'm remembering my notes. It's yeah. We carry. I think we said we carry death out of the village. Or, or is out it the out of the village? Valley. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Village. Yeah. Okay. I probably couldn't I'm read my handwriting. And and then he talks about being uh being pledged to another, or he doesn't doesn't believe in sex before marriage, and he's engaged. Apparently. Yeah. He's engaged to be married. Apparently. Yeah. So I that's. I wondered how, if there was we... some uh, additional stuff with his um bride that was cut out too. Cause I think I know that yeah. they cut out police, the police station stuff. So they may have talked about the fact that he was engaged at least. I could be wrong. Yeah. He said, he did say he's, he's not married, but he's because he hasn't had sex yet. He doesn't believe in premarital sex, but he's, he is engaged. No, I meant that the woman's name was Mary, but maybe he's oh, Mary. Yeah, engaged maybe that to, mar- to be married. Right. I don't know, which would be yeah. funny if her name was Mary, because then there's Mary Magdalene. Right. Sure. Oh, that, Virgin yeah. Mary or, Clearly, that would be maybe even too obvious. So I don't know. Maybe yeah. I, I just put that. Yeah. Apparently, there's more about the engagement in the Wickerman book. I'm kind of looking it up here and that her name is Mary. Yep. Oh, but, there you go. Which is a pretty yeah. generic name to choose as well. But Yeah, but it works. So. Yeah, I'm sorry. The, the Wickerman novelization starts off with Neil Howie hanging out with Mary doing bird watching. So I, I need to check that out, yeah, because it has all sorts of extra bits. But again, it's ah, extra it's bits. Huh. It's extra bits written by Robin Hardy. So uh, are they? You know, is it canon or is if it's written yeah, yeah, afterwards? Yeah. I don't. I don't sure. really know. Yeah. Well, there's a whole art apparently to novelizations that some people are fascinated by, where writers will will spin off their own kind of fan fiction, so to speak. Yeah. 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 This is where they talk. There's some some stuff about the May Day celebration here, and I, I don't know if it's her, if it's Willow describing the celebration to him, but you know they mention hobby horses and she kind of gives him a possible way out. I think, like, okay. doesn't she say something to the effect that you should get out of town? Or maybe, again, I could be. I think she does say something like that. Like, if you're gonna go, go now. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, but she basically describes the whole May Day, right? She talks about the characters, yeah. the figures, the hobby horse. She talks about the sword sun dance, that there will be a uh, historic sacrifice. So either way, this this does drive him to pretty much try to flee the islands. So, I mean, he's he realizes, first of all, he realizes Rowan's not dead yet. That she hasn't been sacrificed already, but that they're planning to sacrifice her for that May Day festival. Right. And there's also a reference by probably by Willow to the idea the fool the fool that somebody will play the fool the punch figure right uh, and and that person will be a privileged simpleton and also king for a day and so like that's that's, that's yeah. interesting though because apparently the innkeeper plays this the the simpleton right. every year right right which he doesn't seem like a the natural guy to do that necessarily but so yeah it's the idea of the characters in the May Day procession are introduced here there's the hobby horse there's there's the priest which is a kind of man woman figure there's the fool the punch figure who's the privileged simpleton and yeah and then he basically heads heads for the boat or heads for the plane uh and demands a diggy take him back out we get a close-up of that eye on the boat again uh and this is what i found this this sequence to be the most frightening in the film actually for me which, you know, you, it, he goes to the boat and you're like thinking, well, he, he's free and clear now, right? I mean, he's going to get out of there. And then to you the look plane. and you see these. Yeah. yeah, right. Sorry, the plane, not yeah. the boat. 
And yeah, you think he's going to make it. And then you look back on the shore and there's all these characters in animal masks staring at him. Right. Just staring. And then you get really ominous music on the soundtrack. You get the discordant strings. Uh, and it's really one of the most frightening shots of those, of those characters in animal masks. Thanks for listening to the Folk Horror Podcast. For screen captures, interesting links, and so forth, go to my blog, boojumpudding.blogspot.com. Follow us on Facebook slash Media. Follow Candlelands on Twitter. Follow Mike on Twitter at happywanderer13 or Candlelands Media on Instagram. Email me at neil at candlelands.com. 